Good to see you this morning, and I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to John's Gospel in the sixth chapter, as we move in our series now into John chapter six, and I'm going to be reading to us from the first 21 verses of the scripture, and I'd encourage you to either read along or kind of meditate along in your heart, whatever is most conducive for you to just take the word you know, into you. Text begins after this. After this could mean sometime later, as a matter of fact. It doesn't mean immediately after. But John's taking us now to this next uh, occasion of Jesus' ministry and a miracle that was his greatest miracle, quantitatively for sure. All four Gospels include it. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, if you wonder where he was, he's on what was today called the Golan Heights, a very contested area, of course, um, a dangerous area with respect to Lebanon. Now, the Passover of the I'm sorry, the the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he knew, what he, he knew himself what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, well, 200 denarii, that's 200 days worth of wages for a working man in the field, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to for each of them to get even a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, you've heard the Greek word for fish is ikthus. Ikthus is a word word that's associated with Christianity. This isn't the word that's used here for fish. It's not the regular word for fish. It's a word that means, you know, very small fish, uh, sardines, really, a little more than kind of little smelt or something like that, small fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, because it was spring, folks, it was Passover time. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. That's just the men, didn't include the women and the children. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. And so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, well, this is indeed the prophet who has come and to come into the world. And perceiving then that they were about to take him and by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they, they were frightened But he said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. Well, then they were glad 
to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this does begin our series, actually. It's a continued series in John, but we're at John 6, and John 6 can almost be its own mini-series. It's lengthy and substantial. And this chapter is famous because it includes Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus' teaching on the meaning of that miracle. It's one of his longest discourses in the Gospels. And, of course, the meaning, to make a long story short, is that Jesus himself is the bread of life, and we're going to get into that. But in particular this morning, today, I want us to focus on the lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples in particular, in particular. It may have been lost on the others, but Jesus did not want it lost on his disciples. I want you to notice something, that between Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and his explanation of the miracle, you noticed that, uh, I read it, that Jesus tucks in the miracle of Jesus walking on water. Now, why does John do that? Uh, it's true that the second miracle occurred just a few hours after the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 occurred, if you read the other gospel accounts of it, it occurred in the evening, and the walking on water, Jesus walking on water occurred about the fourth watch um, or the last watch of the night before dawn, so it had been around 4 a.m. So they did occur right next to each other. But still, this story inserted here of Jesus walking on the water seems to inter interrupt the flow of the story as John is telling it. I mean, John did not have to include Jesus walking on the water. Luke doesn't include Jesus walking on the water, though he covers the miracle of the 5,000. So why does John do this? That's my, my question. And I think the answer is because the miracle of Jesus walking on the water is not intended to stand on its own, but it really underscores the message, his message, to his disciples in the first miracle. That's why it's here. Jesus walking on the water in John is a very abbreviated account compared with Matthew or Mark or Luke, but I think it's here to underscore the message of the first miracle. In both miracles, in one where crowds were present and one where no crowds were present, but in both miracles, Jesus was testing his disciples' faith. He was calling them to trust him personally in ways they had never done before. This was new to them. He was pushing them to the edge of whatever belief they had about Christ. He was compelling them to personalize this belief as a deep trust in Christ for what they were facing. Now let's go back and tell the story a little bit more. If, if the Sea of Galilee was a clock, then you understand, and you've been a disciple, then you would, have, you would have sailed with Jesus early that day from Capernaum, which was at uh, 10 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee, to uh, the Golan Heights, which was about 1 o'clock on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, 
If you wonder why, it's because Herod Antipas had just beheaded John the Baptist. And having beheaded John the Baptist, now he's starting to get very suspicious and upset about Jesus. And so it was in the face of both grief and in the face of danger that Jesus led his disciples on what they thought now was going to be a retreat to come away for a while, away from the crowds. Uh, they were working through stuff uh, outside of Herod Antipas's jurisdiction, which is where the Golan Heights were. But people began to follow them, follow Jesus, and a crowd began to gather as many as some say 15 or 20,000 people, including the women and the children along with the, the men. And, and so you can imagine this. Here's Jesus and his disciples, you know, up on the hillside, overlooking, uh, uh, up on the heights, overlooking this, you know, beautiful Sea of Galilee and trying to, you know, kind of collect themselves and so forth. And they're looking at this growing mass of people walking around the Sea of Galilee and thousands and thousands gathering before, below them. In Matthew 14, in Matthew's gospel, um, <laughs> the scripture says that the disciples actually went to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, look, <laughs> send these people away. It's the end of the day. They've come a long way. They're hungry. We don't want a bunch of hungry people expecting us uh, to, to have them as guests for dinner. It's basically what they were saying. But imagine then, if that was your frame of mind, you're a little on edge already, Hospitality being what it is, if people come to you, you feed them. Imagine then being that disciple, Philip, and Jesus turning to you and saying, Hey, Philip, where shall we buy bread to feed all these people? What do you think? Imagine. You, you looking at me, Lord? Even if we could find bread out here, we don't have enough money to pay for it. I, I checked Judas, who runs the treasury. We have uh, about 200, 200 uh, days payments worth, daily payments worth of food. That's uh, maybe enough for about eight, eight months for one person. Now, Lord, look, here is it. Here is the thing. You know, I, I did the math. And if people need 100 bites of food a day, each person here with that amount of bread is only going to get one bite and a nibble. It's nothing. Or imagine you were Andrew. And you hear this exchange between Jesus and Philip. And you come up to Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, you know, aside from the money, you know, the only bread around here that I see is a little, a little boy's lunch. And he's got five barley loaves. Why does barley significant? Because it was the bread of the poor. And what is a loaf? A loaf was literally a little more than a wafer that had been probably cooked on a hot stone. He's got these five little, little biscuits. And he's got these... He's got these two small fish as a relish. You know, kind of smush them on the bread and take a bite. <laughs> there's, there's no way. And you'd think that would be the end of it. And Jesus would say, you're right. There's no problem. Yeah, that, no problem. We, we just won't do it. We'll, we'll send them off. No. He commits his disciples further. He says to them, now, you go have the people sit down. You have the people... Lord, you want me to have these people sit down like I'm going to show them hospitality? Yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. This is like having a hundred guests, hungry guests, show up at your home unannounced, inviting them all to stay for dinner, but all you've got is 
half a can of tuna fish in the refrigerator and, and, and the remains of just one sleeve of rich crackers. That's all you've got. And that was the situation that Jesus was really putting his disciples in when he said to them, have him sit down. And then Jesus prayed over the morsels. And the text doesn't tell us what he prayed, but the standard Jewish prayer of that time was probably the prayer that he prayed, which was, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And I just think these disciples must have suspected that they were witnessing a car wreck. And what's worse, Jesus now put them in the front seat of the car because he directs them to serve them food. He, they're going to serve the food. So I don't know. I was thinking about this. Maybe it was just in my head. But anyway, I'm just imagining myself this week being the sixth disciple in line to get food from Jesus. There's only five barley loaves. And I would be keenly aware of that if I was the sixth guy in line. And I would be thinking, why can't I be number five? I'm going to be the first one who has nothing to offer these groups of people that I'm supposed to serve. Life just isn't, you know, life, life there's just, there's, I'm going to have to go say to them, no bread for you. That's what I'm going to have to say to them. What a bummer. But then Jesus hands Number six and number one and number two. He's handsome all bread. And you go serve that bread. And then as you turn for more, he gives you more. And then after everyone has eaten, until they can eat no more, they have their fill. You pick up 12 basketfuls of fragments that are left over. What does that teach you? Now fast forward. It's 4 a.m. in the morning. You've been rowing for hours on the Sea of Galilee. You, it's a rough sea. Uh, it's against a fierce storm. Fierce storm swept in from the west through the valleys, coming right down on top of the Sea of Galilee. Could happen very, very quick. It's so dark, you can't see anything except when there's lightning. You're disoriented. You're exhausted. You're soaked. You're miles from the shore. You have to bail out water to keep from being swamped. It's all you can do to keep the boat turned into the storm so it doesn't get overwhelmed and flooded. And Jesus is back on dry land praying or something. And you're terrified. And then your panic really does turn to sheer terror. You're even more frightened because, because in a flash of lightning, you're looking out over the water and you suddenly see someone, something, a specter, a ghost coming to you on the water? Is this what happens when people are about to die? Do they see one of these things coming toward them? And Jesus said, he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. And if you were a disciple, you would have then received him into the boat. And before you knew what was happening, immediately the text says, the boat arrived safely on the shore. Now I want to cap off both ends of these two miracles with a comment that comes from the scriptures. 
The first comment is from John chapter 6, verse 6, which I read, which was at the beginning. When Jesus puts Philip on the spot and asks him, where are we to buy bread that we can feed these folks? John makes this comment. He says that Jesus said this to test him. He said this to test him because he knew what he was going to do. The second comment actually comes from Mark's recounting of this story. Mark chapter 6, 34. At the end of the second miracle, after Jesus had walked on water, and Mark's commenting on how, how frightened the disciples had been and on how astounded they were that Jesus would come to them on the water. And this, this is what Mark writes. He said, for they did not understand about the loaves. He's going back to the first miracle, isn't he? They're not un- they did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. You see what's happening here is that Mark ties Jesus' lesson for his disciples when he fed the 5,000. He ties that lesson directly into Jesus walking on water to save his disciples. In other words, Jesus performed that second miracle of his walking on water to to see if they learned the lesson of the first miracle, which was his feeding of the 5,000. And they hadn't learned it yet. But the lesson was very clear. The lesson was, that you can trust me personally. You can know that I understand the plights that you're in in your life, the perplexities. You can, I un- you can know that I understand the difficulties that come when you're trying to serve me, trying to obey me, trying to follow me. You can know I'm always looking out for you. I am going to care for you because you're my disciple. I am your mentor. I know you need a mentor. I am always going to be here with you. You can trust me when you finally get a little time to yourself. And you're suddenly faced with 5,000 people who want you to feed them. And it seems like I've left you holding the bag. You can trust me then. You can trust me In the blinding storm at 4 a.m., all is dark and chaos, and it seems like I am far off somewhere else. You can trust me. You can trust me personally. That's what faith is all about. Faith is not about simply believing that I am the Christ, that I am the Lord. Your faith in me is about believing that I am your Savior. I came to save you. As surely as the rest is true. In fact, it's because the rest is true that this is true. You never know. Isn't it true? You never know who's going to show up in your life. You never know what the Lord is going to send your way. But you can be sure of this one thing, and that is that his purpose includes you, and that his purpose in what happens includes you, and that his purpose for you is to teach you to trust him in the face of every dilemma, whether whether it's finding bread, for every threat 
whether it's a stormy sea. You see, what he's, no matter what happens, you can, you can talk about grand purposes, but we can also talk about just as much about God's purpose and Christ's purpose in relationship to me. And in every one of those plights and in every one of those perplexities, he's saying to us, look, it's not about you. And it's not about them or it's not about that thing that's happening to you. This is about us. This is about us. I'm going to offer a couple of perspectives to help kind of drive this home, this lesson that Jesus was teaching his disciples, you know, for our own hearts. Think about how to do that, how to internalize that this week. So this is kind of what I came up with for myself, so I'd just like to share it with you if that's all right. First of all, I think it's true that when we find ourselves in trouble, circumstances beyond our control, we just do not know how to <laughs> resolve some dilemma or threat in our life. I think it's the most natural thing in the world to ask ourselves, what am I going to do? <laughs> what, what am I going to do? But I want to say that it's one thing to hear yourself asking yourself that question with all of the, the fretting and the fear and the despair that surrounds it. What am I going to do? That's a very hard question. And it's also a, a very lonely question. But, you know, it's quite another thing to hear the Lord ask you that question. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because then it's neither hard nor lonely. Well, Lord, <laughs> you're trying to stump me, aren't you? <laughs> but I'm going to trust you, Lord. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look to you. And I'm so thankful that you're with me. And that you would raise that question with me. Because to answer that question, when I hear it from you, I have to look to you. Which is what this is all about. When you hear that question, what am I going to do? Whose voice are you hearing? Are you hearing your voice? Or are you hearing the Lord's voice? Now, this is what I think about my own life in Christ. Maybe some of you can resonate with this. My own conclusion is that when I don't hear the Lord asking me, what are you going to do, it's because I'm so frantically caught up in speaking to myself, I can't really hear him. And when I am at that point where I am so frantically caught up listening to myself that I don't hear him, it's not, it is not because of the panic of the moment, it's probably because I've really been listening more to myself than to the Lord for some time. And this is time for a little reorientation. Jesus is fully aware of my situation, whatever it is, how difficult it is. He's fully aware of your situation long before you start fretting about it. And as John said about Jesus in relation to Philip, it's true of you. He knows what he's going to do about it. 
So you're really not bringing him into the loop. <laughs> you know? he, he, he's in the loop already. So when I hear my frantic questioning, it reminds me that there's a message waiting for me. My Savior, Christ, is raising the same question because he's here to help me, just like he was there to help Philip. There's a message waiting for me because he's here to help me. He wants me to hear him because he really is the answer to every need or every fear that his disciples will ever have. And it is not naive or simplistic to think that way. It is simple and profound to begin at that point. This is, by the way, the starting point for all Christian service or ministry, for all Christian sacrifice. Because if we don't believe this, we won't venture forth to feed anyone or to row anywhere that requires faith. We won't do it. It's just too daunting to us. Uh, we'll, st- we'll stay on the shore. And I look at this, you know, I think about our trip, our team going to London, you know, in conversation with our folks going to London. I think most of the people going to London uh, haven't gone there before. By the way, just dawned on me. Kanisa, are you here? Did I call you up too? Okay, good. It just random thought. Did I remember to call on Kanisa? And in conversations with people who are going to London, uh, you know, I've heard you know, a certain amount of, uh, from some of us, uh, you know, a certain amount of you know, uncertainty, a little bit of anxiety. Uh, Austin Thompson isn't here but, uh, right now, unless he slipped in. Austin, did you show up? God bless you. Let's give this man a round of applause. He's, I don't... You know, Austin is a professional puppeteer, as you know, and producer of media involving puppetry, but he's got this program or this presentation of ministry he's taking to London. He's never used it with anyone before. But he's committed to doing it. We have people who are going to London who've never been there before. Um, who don't know what it's like, um, who are very much aware of the acts of terror that have occurred there recently. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you really don't believe this about Christ, that he's totally trustworthy, we just don't reach out. We won't do anything. We won't do anything. You know, right now we're looking at, um, we're studying pretty carefully and consistently this year, Outreach and ministry to asylees and refugees and people whom the Lord has brought into our community. You'll read about that in Atonement Life today. It's progressive. We're learning. But, you know, if we don't believe that we, Christ is trustworthy and, and is going is to use us and help us meet the needs of people who've got a lot of needs, we wouldn't even begin to venture into this. We are venturing into it, not because we want to be informed, but because we want to be involved for Christ's sake. But we don't believe this about Christ. We will not venture. We will not venture. And we'll always have good reasons. We're not venturing. But the reason we're really not venturing is because we really don't trust Christ. Every week, I'm going to say this, I see how the Lord responds and cares for you and for me too. 
But as a pastor, every week, some of you, several of you will call me or sit down with me, and you're going to, you ask me to join you in asking God for wisdom, asking the Lord to help you because of terrible things that are happening in your life or because of overwhelming demands that are on your life. And I'm not exaggerating. I think terrible things do happen. And I think overwhelming demands are faced. But over the course of 24 years, you know, I have seen how Jesus sustains you and how he brings you through the darkest storms. And if your life stories were all just uh, lined up next to each other, you know, line by line, person by person, you would be marveling, really marveling, at the similar pattern in all your life stories of how faithful Christ has really been to you. And these patterns of deliverance and of protection and of provision are not a happenstance. These patterns of God's, Christ's trustworthiness to you are happening in a world where so many people, so many others really are wasting away or making shipwreck of their lives. I mean, the difference really is Christ. The difference is trusting him personally, putting yourself in his hands. It really, really is. Here's a second perspective that I want to uh, give you that helped me. You know, when we confess, I alluded to it already, when we confess that Jesus is the Lord, you know, we think, at least I think, in cosmic terms. I mean, I'm supposed to. He's the Lord over all, and God's bringing through Christ, through his Son, the Lord is bringing to pass his purpose for all things, all things seen, all things unseen, for the entire creation, for all of, you know, humanity, the entire human race. But this same Lord really is our Savior. He is as committed to delivering you from the plights and perplexities of your life as he is to deliver the entire creation from chaos and evil. It's just a matter of scale. But the Lord does not overlook the sparrow. He knows the number of hairs that are on your head, just as he knows exactly how many stars are in the universe, and he calls them out each name by name. He knows each cell in your body. He knows you. He knows you. We wonder sometimes in the course of our lives, we wonder, you know, Lord, are you keeping an eye on me? I mean, are you aware of what I'm going through? Are you keeping... Are you keeping up with me, Lord? But the truth is, and the truth always is, he isn't just keeping up with us. He's ahead of us. He is ahead of us. And he tests us as his disciples. So we learn to trust him. Because it's in learning to trust him that it's, it's we then who are keeping up with him, who's always ahead of us. We trust him. We trust him. That was the message that Jesus had for his disciples in the midst of two really marvelous miracles. And that's the message that he has for you and that I believe he has for me today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word in the beginning of John 6. It's a great chapter and teaches profound things about Jesus, absolutely profound things about you and about salvation. But there's this uh, 
very significant and very, I think, tender message that Jesus is teaching his disciples about us together, us with him. And I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd impress it on our hearts today. You would give us courage where we're feeling uh, discouraged, uh, that you would give us pause and draw us back into fellowship with you where we've been just kind of frantically hearing our own voice and we know you're going to have your way with us. You're already ahead of us. You already know what's going to happen. So we want to keep up with you. And we'll do that by trusting you. By trusting you. And we thank you to Christ our Lord. Amen.